when U.S. Attorney Philip Barton Key was shot in broad daylight and carried into the Washington Club in D.C.'s Lafayette Square, it served as an omen of what would occur there just six years later in the most unforgettable night of carnage in the city's history. Welcome to American Esoterica. If history class gives you the television, this is the remote lost among the couch cushions. The essential stuff in between, the personalities, events, and other ephemera that shape our history and culture. I'm Brian Powers. We all know the big headline from the night of April 14, 1865. President assassinated at Ford's Theater. What we forget is that he wasn't the only intended victim that evening, and there was, indeed, a very real conspiracy afoot to bring the government to its knees. That the death was limited almost to just the president was as much due to blind, stinking luck as it was to anything else. But that doesn't mean that there weren't very real victims. In 1861, two years after the death of Philip Barton Key, the Washington Club, where he may have spent his final moments, was sold to a new occupant, William Seward, the incoming Secretary of State under the new administration of Abraham Lincoln. Seward moved his family in shortly after the first shots of the Civil War were fired at Fort Sumter. It was a great location, across the street from the White House, close to the State Department, and built on land that had belonged to Henry Clay. The home quickly became a social center for Washington, with even the president coming by for regular casual visits. Four years later, in 1865, the Civil War was drawing to a close when calamity befell Seward. Seward was a dedicated cigar smoker, often riding on the outside of carriages to enjoy his habit. In one case in April of 1865, however, he was thrown from the carriage in an accident, and he wound up with a concussion, a broken jaw, and a broken arm. This wasn't his first accident either. His initial political career had begun with a stagecoach accident that fortuitously introduced him to the man who would become his political mentor. At first blush, however, this more disastrous incident did not appear to leave him so lucky. President Lincoln, spirits high after Grant's victory in Virginia, cut short a visit to Richmond to come see the bedridden Seward and, according to an artist who had been living in the White House, he entered upon an account of his visit to Richmond and the glorious success of Grant, throwing himself in his almost boyish exaltation at full length across the bed, supporting his head upon one hand and in this manner reciting the story of the collapse of the rebellion. It was the last time the two men would meet. A few days later and a few blocks away, a different meeting was taking place in the Herndon House, a boarding house around the corner from Ford's Theater. In March, the assembled men had planned to kidnap the president and take him to Richmond to ransom for Confederate prisoners, but a change in plans thwarted their attempt. The fall of Richmond and the surrender of Lee turned the would-be kidnappers into a full-blown murderous conspiracy. Just hours before a certain play was set to begin, 
John Wilkes Booth brought his conspirators together and gave them their orders. Booth would take out the biggest target. George Atzerodt would go after the vice president. And Lewis Powell, with some navigational assistance from David Harold, would assassinate Secretary of State Seward. Booth made haste to Ford's theater. Atzerodt wandered into a hotel bar, and Powell and Harold set off for Lafayette Square. At around 10 p.m., Seward's servant, a free African-American man named William Bell, answered the door to find a tall, well-dressed man, Powell, explaining that he had a prescription for Seward and a message he had to deliver personally. Powell insistently pushed his way past Bell and ran upstairs, where Bell caught up with him. Hearing the commotion, Seward's son Frederick came out to see what was going on. Powell pressed on with his insistence that he had a message from the doctor and only he could deliver it. Since Seward was sleeping, Frederick declined on his behalf and turned Powell away. Retreating a few steps down, Powell suddenly turned and fired a gun at Frederick, which misfired. Undaunted, Powell began to beat Frederick in the head with the pistol itself, the blow so furious that the pistol broke. Bell ran down the street for help, yelling, Murder! 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 Powell entered Seward's bedroom to find Seward's nurse, recuperating soldier George Foster Robinson, and Seward's daughter Fanny. Powell slashed Robinson in the head, then ran to Seward and stabbed him in the face and neck before Robinson recovered and pulled him off. Powell stabbed Robinson repeatedly to break loose and pushed past Fanny. On the way back out of the house, he struck Seward's oldest son on the head and stabbed a War Department messenger in the back. Bell saw Powell emerge from the house and escape on horseback, and he ran after him, failing to keep up as he followed the fleeing attacker on foot. The five direct victims of the attack survived, although just barely. Robinson and Fanny Seward were able to stop the excessive bleeding on the stricken Secretary of State until a doctor arrived. Frederick was beaten so badly that parts of his brain were exposed, and he slipped into a coma for two months. But each assaulted party eventually recovered. But this night still ultimately produced at least one death. Sadly, the stress of enduring an attack that left her husband and son clinging to life was too much for Seward's wife Frances to bear, and she died of a heart attack two months later. Their daughter Fanny, already in fragile health, joined her 16 months after that, succumbing to tuberculosis. For what it's worth, Powell got caught in the dumbest way possible by showing up at co-conspirator Mary Surratt's house a few days later while soldiers were there questioning her. He carried a pickaxe and claimed to have been hired to dig a gutter. The soldiers were a bit suspicious, seeing how it was 11 p.m. at night, and his problems were compounded by the fact that he was still wearing the blood-stained shirt from the attack. Surratt wouldn't vouch for his blatant lie, and he was arrested then and there, ultimately hanging for his crimes. It should be noted that Seward was horrifically wounded in the attack, but Powell's assassination attempt failed. But why? Powell missed stabbing Seward in the jugular vein because the wires doctors had put in place to set his broken jaw deflected the blow. Seward's carriage accident, while seemingly a disaster, may have actually saved his life. This has been American Esoterica. All sounds were made by me, Brian Powers. Did I get it wrong? Did I get it right? Just want to talk about your plans to someday visit Alaska? Drop me a note. The address is yell at AmericanEsoterica.com. Thank you for listening, and God bless America. <laughs>